And adults, if you want to take your Bibles, you who are staying out here, and turn to Genesis chapter 14, we're going to be spending the next several weeks looking at Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then the book of Hebrews as we consider, continue considering the priestly office of Christ, and in particular we look at a very somewhat cryptic character in Scripture, um, but a very important character in Scripture, that of Melchizedek. Genesis chapter 14, I'm going to go ahead, we'll read the passage and then we'll pray, and then we will start our journey through uh, who Melchizedek is. Genesis chapter 14, verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, Chedrolaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karanim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava Kirathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. And yes, those are hard names to pronounce. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people." After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. 
And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourselves. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to Yahweh, to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing But what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the guidance and direction it gives us, that it is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Father, we thank you that um, you provide your word to us in a multitude of different ways avenues and and in different genres. And we think as we hear this story, this history, and how it demonstrates um, both your faithfulness and the importance of the priestly work that looks forward to what your Son will do. Father, may we continue to see Christ for all His glories. May we continue to rest upon Him in all things, that we can see that we have a good and faithful high priest over the household of God, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Guide and direct our time here. May we learn, but may we learn not just with the intention of filling our minds, but may we learn for the sake of the truth of your Word permeating our hearts and changing us more into the image of your Son. Father, work in our midst as only you can. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. So we're looking at the priestly office, and we've been looking at Abraham and how Abraham fulfills that priestly office. And we looked at last week how Abram was an altar builder. And we saw in specific areas he built altars to Yahweh, to the Lord. And there was some significance in that, that he would build altars in response to God's presence, God appearing to him. We saw that he would build altars in response to... um, Uh, God's name, and he called upon the name of the Lord, called upon Yahweh as his God at that time. And then we also saw how uh, he gave thanks and, and, uh, and built an altar to God's faithfulness and to his promises as God would repeat again the promises to bless him. And we're going to come back to that again. There is, there is in Abraham's life a, a constant sort of of a cycle or repetition of blessing that God is giving. And he sort of builds the anticipation up until the point where he makes a covenant and enters into a covenant. Uh, in what we call the Hebrew term is a bereath. He actually enters into that from a formal perspective, and we'll look at that in the upcoming weeks. Uh, but there, even there we see that sacrifice and, and the priestly office is involved with that. But today we come to a somewhat rather strange encounter, especially if you've just been reading through the book of Genesis. So if you're just taking the book of Genesis as a literary unit, you're reading through it, you see God's creation, you see the, 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 how sin comes into the world, you see how God deals with that, we see the flood. There's, there's a litany of different things that go on 
in that. And then we see, of course, Abram being called out, and we, we looked at some of that last week. And then you come to this sort of strange scene in Genesis chapter 14, which recounts a war, recounts a battle. Um, we're going to look at some of the important uh, notes of that, but it also brings about this person, Melchizedek. And so today we're going to be looking at Abram and Melchizedek. And, and we're not going to give all the answers today. Um, we're not going to give all the answers next week and likely the third week that we spend on this. We're still not going to have all the answers about who is this mysterious figure that just sort of appears abruptly into the narrative of Abraham's life. And what we find is that this individual becomes extremely important to pointing us to Christ as our great high priest. So I want to begin by looking at the faithfulness of God as it's demonstrated in this passage. Now, this is important because if we go back to Genesis 3.15, there was a promise that someone would come and crush the head of the serpent. But as the serpent's head would be crushed, what would happen to the heel of this one who would crush the head of the serpent? It itself would be crushed. So what we see throughout Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, all throughout the Old Testament is God demonstrating His faithfulness. And in particular, I think it's of note in Genesis to note that He's doing this to show, I will fulfill my promise. There will be a curse reverser who will one day come. And so we see the faithfulness of God demonstrated in Genesis chapter 14. And we see that the background of Melchizedek's appearance in Scripture is that of war. So to sort of recap what we read in Genesis chapter 14, for over a decade, the kings of the cities in southwestern Canaan, so if you, if you think about, if you can think of or imagine a map of Israel, you have the Dead Sea, you have the Jordan River, you have the Sea of Galilee at the, nor- Galilee at the north, so we're talking to the Dead Sea, we're talking about this area sort of down here, southwestern Canaan. There were kings, and what's interesting is that, that the size of these nations or these kings, they were city-state kings. They would rule over cities mainly. And so the kings of these cities in southwestern Canaan, near and around the valley of the Dead Sea, they had been subject to a group of kings led by a guy named Chedorlaomer, a king of Elam. So, uh, again, besides the fact that he has a really hard name to pronounce, who is this Chedorlaomer, and why are these kings sort of paying homage to him? And, and this was very common in those days. You would, have, you would have ruling kings, and you would have vassal kings, and those vassal kings would have to pay tribute to these kings. They would support them. Um, and that's, it's interesting, the, the term that's used here is it talks about how these kings rebelled against Chedorlaomer uh, because they wanted to cast off his rule and reign over them. Now, I think it's important to see what we can know about Chedorlaomer. We don't really know anything about Chedorlaomer besides his name, that his name is Chedorlaomer. Now, his name may mean, and we're not sure exactly 100% if this is the full meaning of it, but based upon linguistic scholars and scholars in ancient Hebrew and Akkadian and all the sort of early languages, um, this is the best bet of what his name means. His name may mean servant of Lagomar. Now, who in the world is Lagomar? Lagomar was a Mesopotamian deity whose liter- name literally means no mercy. 
Um, he was a, from Babylonian and Assyrian sources, we find that he's considered a god of the underworld. And in particular, his responsibility as a god of the underworld, so this was the idea, this is not biblical truth, all right? This is what the nations would make up in their minds as they suppress the truth about who God was. There was a constant belief in an underworld and that people would have to give an account in the underworld for their lives. Lagmar, this, this, uh, this deity, this Mesopotamian deity, he was the one who was primarily involved with the judgment of souls after death in the underworld. And he served the role of an accuser or a prosecutor who would go and point out, say, well, this is what you did in your life. This is why you deserve to stay in the underworld or whether you could go on to heaven. Now, the fact that, his, that Lagmar's name means accuser, who else is called an accuser in Scripture? Satan. Satan's name literally means accuser. So I, I cannot help but to escape the similarity between Lagmar, Lagmar and Satan. And so, particularly if you're coming from a viewpoint, you're coming like Abraham is, and you understand who the God of the Bible is, um, you're going to recognize that Satan, the accuser, uh, if this, this guy who's coming, he's essentially saying he is a servant of the devil, a servant of Satan. So I, I say that because it's going to become important when we look at how Abraham responds to all this. So five of these kings, they decide to rebel against Chedorlaomer, and war ensued. Now, Chedorlaomer and his forces were a formidable foe. If you look in the passage, it talks about um, how in verse 5, in the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Kernaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavath, Kirathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Now, we, we hear all that and we're like, okay, what does that mean? But if you realize what it's saying, it's talking about Chedorlaomer and his armies winning battles. And in particular, he's winning battles against the first group that's mentioned there. They are the Rephaim. Now, who are the Rephaim? Well, the Rephaim refer to an ancient race of giants. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 10, he actually talks about the Emim as well, which are discussed in this passage as well. But he talks about the Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many, and as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Emim. So what we're talking about is not your, not your average soldier that Chedorlaomer has, has defeated. We're talking about almost supermen that he's gone up in battle against and won. We also find in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 11, there is a discussion about Og, king of Bashan, and he was a remnant of the what? The Rephaim. What do we know about Og, king of Bashan? Well, we, we know he's defeated in battle, but this is what we know about him. His bed was made of iron, it is not in Rabbah, is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? So at the time of Moses writing this, it, it still existed and it had been set aside because of the, of the nature of this bed. It was nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth, according to the common 
cubit. So a common cubit would generally be from the elbow to the top of your finger, your index finger. So about 18 inches. So this is a massive bed. Like this is a king size. Like you heard about a California king. This is like bigger than a California king bed. And the implication is he had this bed because he needed uh, a bed that big enough to take how big he was. And again, he was a part of this Rephaim. There's another, um, there's another character in Scripture, another figure in Scripture that we see that is also associated with the Rephaim. Anyone want to take a guess as to who that might be? We're talking about Goliath. I was going to say we're talking about giants, but I know the minute I said giants, that was going to give away. Yeah, we're talking about Goliath. Numbers chapter 13, verses 32 through 33. Oh, I'm sorry. We're, we're not, we'll get there in a second. Notice that when the people of Israel were going into the promised land, the spies were sent out to uh, spy out and to see if the land was acceptable. And so you have, you know, 12 men went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad, and 2 were good. There's that song that we learn in in junior church. So what was the report of the 10 bad um, spies? And listen to what they said. They said, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of what? Great height. And there, were, there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seemed to them. Sorry, I'm not sure why that was on there twice. Um, and, and so, and again, um, so Israel was scared of, the, of these continued people as they would go into the land. And, and there's, there's discussion back and forth about the Nephilim and the Rephaim and how they all work out. Let's just say there were a bunch of large people in those days. And if you're facing them in battle, it would be a very formidable thing as you face that. And again, depending on whether you take a term in 2 Samuel 21 as a proper noun, um, it's likely that Goliath was descendant from the Rephaim. He was a giant. So, Here's what Chedorlaomer has fought against and won. Now, Abram, while all this is happening, he's back at the original location where the Lord appeared to him and where he built his first awful, uh, altar. Excuse me. He is at the Oaks of Mamre. And he's there, and he's in league with the Amorites uh, and uh, the, the children, brother of Eschol and Aner. They were allies of Abram. And so he's in a place where he's remembering how God had appeared to him. And of course, as we read in verse 13, there's this one who escapes and comes and tells Abram, the Hebrew, and then it's also important to note this is the first instance of the use of the term Hebrew in the Old Testament. He comes and he says, look, this is what's happened. And note, who had been taken away? His nephew, Lot had been taken captive because Lot earlier in chapter 13 decided to go towards the fair land, even though the fair land brought him near to a wicked city, the city of Sodom. So what does Abram do? Now, I want you to think about for a second what, what this would mean, right? You have four kings with great armies that have defeated giants, armies, they've defeated armies of giants, You hear that your nephew has been taken captive. You look around and you have, 
you know, you have some men. You have 318 men that you can rally, but it's likely a force that is puny compared to the people that you're going up against. What are you going to do? Are you jumping at the, at the possibility of going to war? Probably not. But we see Abram remembering, I think, and especially the fact that he's at the Oaks of Mamre. He's at that place where God appeared to him the first time. The presence of God and the security of who God is is likely influencing his thought process here, as it should influence all of our thoughts. God had promised that he was going to bless Abram. He promised that he was going to bless the nations with Abram. He said he's going to make his descendants as the sands of the sea. So in that moment, understanding God's promise, Abram was invincible. No one could touch him. Nothing could pull away from God's purposes for him. So what does he do? And I really think depending upon um, Abram, depending upon the word of God, he goes to save his nephew, nephew, gathers his skilled men, 318 of them, and he pursues Chedorlaomer. He leads them and, and what's interesting here is he leads them into battle. Look at verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinmen, kinsmen had been, ta- had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. You know, if you look at like how battles usually went on, the generals, they would stand behind the armies that would go before them, and they would direct them from behind. What is Abram doing? He's not leading from behind. He's charging forth. He's leading the armies in front and taking the battle directly to his enemies. And so he leads them into battle. He defeats his enemies, and he drives them out of Canaan. In fact, far out of Canaan. It tells tells us that he, he drives them north of Damascus. So this is, this is way outside of the land of Canaan. And so in this event, we see God remaining faithful to His promises to Abram. We see that God preserved Abram from a formidable foe. Again, Abram had no children, yet so in one sense he could not be touched until God's promises would be fulfilled. There's, there's a wonderful hope in that reality for us that no matter what we face, no matter what difficulty comes into our lives, no matter how, how big the obstacle may be, God will accomplish His purposes for His people. He never fails. And so, Again, we can look at the the difficulties in life and we can feel overwhelmed by them, and yet it is looking to the God who saves, looking to the God who keeps His covenant promises, looking to examples of how He delivers. I mean, is anyone here, you know, tomorrow morning, are you going to get up and face a battle with giants? Is anyone facing that? Well, the kids, maybe the kids can feel like they can be giants. But but the reality is that, that... if God preserved, these, are real, these aren't just fairy tales. These are real stories. And so if God preserved Abram in that way, can he not preserve us as we face the formidable foes of our lives? We also see that God makes Abram to be a blessing to other nations. And I think this is missed often in this passage. 
what was, what was the main sort of, of leader of these, of these kings that warred against Chedorlaomer, the king of Sodom? Now, was Sodom considered an upstanding city? No. And in fact, in, if you look at Genesis 13, you see that, that it was a debauched place. It was a place filled with evil. And yet, through Abram, God uses Abram to be a blessing to wicked nations. Abram delivers the king of Sodom. He is able to bring him back into his land. And even Abram, having rightly won the spoils of war, what does he do with the spoils of war? He gives it back to the king of Sodom. I mean, we see already God using Abram to be a blessing to other nations. And not just, you know, the best of nations. We're looking at wicked, evil cities that God is blessing through Abram. Don't we have such a gracious God? And then finally, we see that that blessing is emphasized, it's highlighted, it's it sort of hits, hits its crescendo in the gospel that's proclaimed through Melchizedek. There were three people at this ancient church service before God, of course, Melchizedek, priest to the Most High God, Abram, and who else was there? The king of Sodom. He saw this all work out in front of his eyes. And so we see God's blessing shown to wicked kings as the gospel is proclaimed there. Now, which brings us to the focus of our time this evening. That was all introduction. Now let's look at Melchizedek. Look with me again in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. So, I think that everything we looked up there is sort of summed up in that. God has been faithful. God has blessed nations through Abram. What happens now is the king of Sodom goes out to meet Abram at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And then verse 18 sort of comes out of nowhere. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So, in the midst of this victory, we see this abrupt scene recounted concerning a mysterious figure that nothing is said about him before, and then we don't hear anything else about him again in the Pentateuch, in the historical books. The next time we hear something about him, it's in one psalm, Psalm 110. Besides that, nothing else is said about this very cryptic character in Scripture. And it's, it's almost strange the way that Melchizedek enters the narrative. From a literary perspective, it's, it's very abrupt. 
In fact, we, if, if we were to read it this way, so if we were to read and, and just read verse 17 um, by itself, and after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Then jumped down to verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, I mean, it almost seems like that's how it should go. And, and so much so that scholars, unbelieving scholars in many cases, have sought to say that, well, this was added in thousands of years after Moses wrote this. And, and, uh, and they, they look, it's so stark that that's the only explanation they can seem to have for it. But again, there's no evidence besides their conjecture that this was added in later. And I think that there's another explanation for why this man suddenly comes on the scene. This is an interruption to the natural flow of what's happening in the narrative, and I think that's meant to display how God interrupts history to save humanity. That what Christ does, He comes into history and abruptly stops the course of human events for the sake of redeeming His people. And I think we almost see that in a literary way being shown here in this story of Melchizedek. Now, as we said, there is very little known about Melchizedek beyond what we have here. Mention, he's mentioned in both the Psalms and then again in the book of Hebrews. And it's really in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament where we see his significance hashed out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, there is considerable debate regarding who Melchizedek is. There are some who would hold that Melchizedek is what we call a Christophany, which is an Old Testament um, appearance of Christ in history, in physical form. That's what we call Christophanies. Now, there are definite Christophanies in Scripture. Uh, The angel of the Lord in many times in, in the Old Testament, when it appears before people, is seen as a Christophany. Um, the commander of the Lord's armies that appears before Joshua. There's considerable evidence to show us that that is a Christophany. But what about here? Is it possible that this is a pre-incarnate uh, revelation of Jesus Christ? And there's evidence both ways. So this Melchizedek in particular is a, is, a, is a subject that I've been fascinated with even from my days in undergraduate studies in college. I remember a group of us getting together and we wanted to write papers specifically on Melchizedek and arguing one way or the other. And back then I held one view and now my view has changed and I hold a different view now. Um, and I don't think whether or not he's a Christophany really makes that big of a difference to the point of what's trying to be brought across here. Uh, But I think when we look at the argument that the writer of Hebrews is going to make about Melchizedek, which we'll look at, Lord willing, either next week or the week after, um, there seems to be evidence, in my opinion, that he is a man and not a Christophany, and we'll hash that out in the upcoming weeks. Um, Regardless of his identification, we see him fulfilling these threefold offices or filling them, seeking to live them out. As he is, again, this cryptic figure that appears, he is one who fills the role of prophet, priest, and king. So look with me again. Melchizedek is first said to be what? King of Salem. 
He brings out bread and wine, and he brings out bread and wine, I think, because he was a what? Priest of God Most High. And then, what does Melchizedek do? He is a prophet in blessing Abraham and speaking these words of blessing. So, I want us to look at these three offices that Melchizedek fills. First of all, Melchizedek is first introduced as a king. He comes out, first of all, to greet the king of Sodom and Abraham, where? In the valley of uh, Shava, that is which is called the valley of what? The valley of kings. Now, where is he king of? The scriptures tell us that he is king of Salem. Now, what is Salem? Well, I, I would argue pretty strongly that Salem would be the future site of the city of Jerusalem. Now, why do I um, bring that out? Why, why do I think that? Well, the term of Jerusalem, Yaira Salem, is the Jewish name that translates as the abiding place of peace. It later becomes known to be a place that is Yahweh's, Yahweh's place of peace, or that, that peace comes in the presence of Yahweh. Um, so there's, there's that evidence there. Um, we also know that Salem is, from other places, is an area in the air, is a, one day an, an area that will be ruled by the Jebusites. And the land where, or the, the hill where Jerusalem is built was taken in conquest from, guess what group? The Jebusites. We also find a clear indication of this in Psalm 76. Psalm 76, 1 through 2. In Judah, so we've already got some, some focus on, on, on location. Southern Israel. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established where? In Salem. Where was the temple built? Jerusalem. His dwelling place is in Zion. So we see at least a clear connection from the passage of Salem and Zion. And Zion referred to a small hill outside of Jerusalem as the dwelling place of God. There's also a connection. Melchizedek's name, name has a root in it called Zedek or Sedek. Uh, that Zedek root is also associated with, um, with, it, with, with Jerusalem. Isaiah 1, 26, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city. He's talking about Jerusalem, the city of what? Righteousness, and righteousness, the Hebrew term is Zedek, Zedek, the faithful city. We see it in Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of what? Righteousness, Zedek, O holy hill. It is a clear connection with um, with Jerusalem. And then this term, the, the Valley of Kings or the King's Valley, that's actually a connection that we see in Absalom's life. 2 Samuel 18, 18. After Absalom has died, after his rebellion has been put down, there's this sort of comment made about Absalom that in his lifetime he had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in where? 
the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. And the reason why that's important is, where, what city did Absalom temporarily gain control of? What city? Jerusalem. He grew up in Jerusalem. He, he looked to Jerusalem as the place where he was going to rule and reign. And because he had no children, he thought, well, at least there'll be something left for me. And so he set up a pillar to his own name, which again, there's a whole, there's a whole sermon involved in that as well, but it's just a, a note. Who should we be seeking to build the fame of in this life? Christ's, Yahweh's, our God's, not others. So there's a thought that this valley of kings is actually the intersection of both the Kidron, Hinnom, and Tyropean valleys where there's a small plain that exists. And all those areas, guess what, guess what city they're all around? Jerusalem. And in fact, so I have pictures of these valleys. It may well be that, that we, when we look at these, this would have been where this event took place. This is the Kidron Valley. And as you can see, there's sort of the, the walled up, there's the old city there, and then sort of up on that hill. And then down, you've got this valley, the, perhaps the Valley of the Kings. Here's another one where you can see a little bit more of a, a rolling pastoral view there. Uh, lots of trees there. And then finally, this is the Valley of Hinnom, uh, where it may be somewhere in these locations. That's where these events occurred. So, it's possible that Melchizedek is coming down because they've decided to meet right outside Jerusalem. And there's just, there's just so much significance there in what, what happens. You, you have this priestly work happening outside, outside what will likely become Jerusalem. And if we fast forward two or 3,000 years, Christ is offering Himself as a sacrifice on the place of the skull, outside of Jerusalem. I mean, there's just significance here that we see in this passage. Well, what we also see is that um, Melchizedek is recognized by both Abraham and the king of Sodom as a king. So again, Melchizedek is a king. But he's not just a king. He's also, what? A priest. And we see that, again, in verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, he brings out bread and wine. And wine. And then we have this parenthetical note. He was a priest of God most high. He brings out both bread and wine. Now, the New Testament does not explicitly connect bread and wine with what, what, what is your mind automatically going to when you think of bread and wine? The Lord's Supper. You're thinking of how Christ, this is my body, this is my, my blood, which is given for you. And the New Testament doesn't make that connection, but I, I think it's almost inescapable for us to see the correlation, the parallelism here. Um, the priestly work of Christ is tied up in the Lord's Supper. What is it that Christ offers before the Father in heaven? Himself. And so we may even see, again, a hint of that in the bread and wine that's offered here. And then he is proclaimed by Moses to be priest of God Most High. 
Now, this is the term El Elyon, right? El Elyon. It denotes that the God whom Melchizedek was a priest before is the greatest God. He is the God of absolute power and sovereignty. He is the one uh, who is clearly in control of all things. He is the supreme God. Now, you have to understand, the king of Sodom is there. And the king of Sodom had grown up in a polytheistic society. He had seen and, and heard about all these other gods. And we know, do other gods exist? Do they exist? No. How many gods are there? One. So we know that these other gods do not exist. But yet, just as, as Paul heads up on Mars Hill and, and looks at the altar to the temple of the unknown God and speaks of proclaiming Him, so I think we see the same thing going on here with this term El Elyon. Now, Scripture bears out that there is only one person who is God Most High, and it is Yahweh. It is Christ. It is the only God who exists. Deuteronomy 32, 8-9, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. When He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But Yahweh's portion is His people, His allotted heritage. We see the power of God, God Most High being seen in how He sets up the nations. Lamentations 3, 35-36, To deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Not only is God the God of all power and directs all things sovereignly, He's also a God of perfect justice. He's a God of righteousness. We see in Daniel that the horn that is prophesied to come up will make war with the saints and will prevail over them. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Until what? The Ancient of Days came. Who is the Ancient of Days? It's Christ. And judgment was given for the saints of who? El Elyon, the Most High God. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. We see it in Isaiah 14. There is this, this day star that Isaiah speaks of that has fallen from heaven. And traditionally, this passage is considered to refer to who? The accuser to Satan. What did he do? He says, How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the notions low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will be El Elyon, he says. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High, like God Most High. But what happens? Is there anyone who can do that? Is there anyone who can tear down God on His throne? The answer is no. Because what happens to the devil? He is brought down to the place of the dead, to the far reaches of the pit. 
But we also see that God Most High is a God who delivers. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will sin from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me, Selah. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. This is the God who Melchizedek is a priest before. But we also see in verse 22, Abraham making an important link. Remember when he was back in, um, in chapter 12, after he had moved from the Oaks of Mamre, he goes to the hill country near Bethel, in between Bethel and Ai, and there he builds an altar to Yahweh, and for the first time he calls upon the name of the Lord, upon Yahweh. That wasn't a fleeting commitment that Abraham made. Look at what he says to the king of Sodom in verse 22. Okay, he's like, he's like, the king of Sodom says, you can take all the goods for yourself. And he says to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to who? Yahweh El Elyon. God, to, to the Lord, God Most High. And what does God Most High own? He possesses what? Heaven and earth. And so Abram's like, look, I don't need all the spoils of war. I lift my hand to God Most High, to Yahweh, my God, who provides everything I need. And so who is El Elyon? It is Yahweh. And we see Abraham making that connection. He declares that Yahweh is God Most High. Well, ultimately, we see in the New Testament that Christ is declared and demonstrated to be God Most High. Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 18, we have this account of the apostles going to a place of prayer, and they're met by a slave girl who's possessed by a spirit of divination. And she brought out her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So she was being exploited. She followed Paul and us, and she's crying out. And this is, this is interesting, all right? What is she crying out? She's not tearing down who they're serving. They said, these are servants of who? The Most High God, El Elyon. They are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, like... I, I don't know what the apostles were thinking, but like you have this demon-possessed girl saying, you know, you're showing the way of salvation. I think it probably at some point they get to the point like, well, this is not the person we want giving testimonials <laughs> for, for what we're preaching. So they, she kept doing this for many days, and Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of who? Jesus Christ come out of her, and the Spirit came out of her that very hour. Who is God Most High? It is Jesus Christ. And so, Abram, we'll go back to our passage here in Genesis 14. The very end of verse 20, after Melchizedek blesses Abram, what does Abram do? He gives him a tenth 
of everything. He worships through the giving of a tenth of all that he has to Melchizedek. There is, and what we're going to see next week is there is a clear indication of the power and the greatness of Melchizedek over Abram, that Melchizedek is greater than Abram. And yet the writer of Hebrews is going to show us that there is one yet greater than Melchizedek, Jesus Christ. So Melchizedek is a priest. And then finally, quickly, we also see Melchizedek is filling the role of a prophet. He acts as a prophet in blessing Abram. After he said this, the king of Salem, priest to God most high, he blessed him and said, and so what we have in the prophetic role is saying, thus says the Lord. And so what is he saying? Well, the Lord has blessed Abram. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, by El Elyon, the one who is possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Is Melchizedek telling Abram anything that's new news? No, Abram already has a blessing that he's received directly from God. So Melchizedek repeats the blessing that Yahweh has already given to him. Now, why do you think he does this? And I, I think it's just to say we need to be reminded of the truths and the gracious blessings we have in God. Our heads are thick and dull and stupid and forgetful. You know, one thing about this book, the Scriptures... Thousands of pages that are saying the same thing. Repent and trust in Christ. The message of the gospel is not that complex. But yet it's said over and over and over again because instead of turning and loving God through Christ as we ought to, what do we do with that truth? We suppress it. We push away from it. So as a result, Melchizedek, who is blessed Abram also worships God, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Here, with the king of Sodom in attendance, Melchizedek reminds Abram and the king of Sodom that their deliverance was not of their own doing. Who delivered them? God Most High. He is the one. It was the hand of God that brought their deliverance. And then Abram gives him a tenth of everything. So, that's it. That's all we see about Melchizedek until the Psalms. And next week we'll pick up in the Psalms and look at a glorious Psalm, the Psalm that is the most quoted in the New Testament. So, if something's quoted the most in the New Testament, do you think we should listen to it and pay attention to it? I think so. And so, we'll look at that next week. In fact, if you want some homework, read Psalm 110. This, this week. It'll be a, a good refresher for you. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are God most high, that you are the possessor of heaven and earth, and that you deliver your people in faithfulness to your promises. Thank you, Lord, for Melchizedek and for this, this, uh, this word that you have preserved through Moses. I pray, Father, that we would seek to be guided by these same principles that guided Abraham to trust in you, to rest in you, and to proclaim your name to the nations. 
Father, may we be a blessing to those around us as we point them to Christ. We pray this in His name, pleading His blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.